All right. Well, it's a couple minutes after the hour. So if you're okay with it, Dr. Kitsios, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Okay. So um, it is my distinct pleasure today to introduce a good friend of mine, uh, a mentor of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Georgios Kitsios. So he has his MD and his PhD, a PhD in genetic epidemiology, um, and did his uh, fellowship training in pulmonary and critical care medicine at University of Pittsburgh, where I was fortunate enough to get to work with him and, and cross paths with him. Um, Dr. Kitsios is really an expert in work in the lung microbiome, specifically in patients in pneumonia and ARDS, has um, a ton of research in this field, lots of publications, of which I will forward you many of his uh, his publications and, and some of the resources he shared with me. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have him here today to share his work with us, um, and so he's going to be talking about the lung microbiome in pneumonia and ARDS. Um, Dr. Kitsios, thank you. Thank you for being here today. I'm excited to hear what you've been up to since I left Pittsburgh, um, and so it, it's up to you without further ado. Thank you so much, Dr. Levine. And if I may, I'll call you Andy, because uh, I don't think I really, um, you know, relate to all those uh, uh, titles of our relationship that you gave, mentor and collaborator. I think we're primarily friends and colleagues. Like, uh, you know, we have some epic uh, uh, ICU nights, I can recall, like intubating next to each other in different rooms. And uh, we've shared so many uh, growing crises in our career. So it's been a true pleasure to work by your side. I'm really excited to see you serving the role as uh, program director of the fellowship at the University of Maryland program. So thank you for uh, the invitation and thank you for everyone uh, joining. Um, I will start uh, uh, my talk, which is going to be broken down in two thematic uh, units. And uh, feel free to interact with me if something uh, doesn't make sense. Uh, and uh, I'll try to break uh, halfway through to address any questions if they come up. Um, I will also share in full disclosure that uh, uh, my voice is not exactly as it sounds, but I'm also in uh, one of those endless post-call uh, days after a tele-ACU night. So um, if I end up losing my voice, I will uh, try to use sign language for the rest of uh, the talk. But uh, let's hope with some coffee and uh, some good faith, all will be fine. So uh, the title of my talk is The Lung Microbiome in Pneumonia and ARDS. And uh, my obligatory uh, disclosures uh, include funding from NIH, some uh, smaller scale funding from uh, my home institutions. I, I want to share also that I was I, I used to hold a research grant from an industry that uh, is uh, active in the field of uh, infectious disease uh, uh, diagnostics. And I'm going to present some data related to this technology uh, later on. Um, so uh, I will start with... Uh, Two, the two main clinical questions that uh, are driving my research. Uh, I identify myself as a physician scientist, but physician first. And uh, my research is built upon questions that I find to be pertinent during my practice in the intensive care unit. And in broad terms, I'm uh, using translational research methods to improve the diagnosis of uh, pneumonia and to figure out uh, what is the patient in front of me infected with as well as to understand the drivers of critical illness heterogeneity, such as why two patients with the same diagnosis of ARDS can be so different from one another. And today, I'm going to share both published and unpublished work from these two lines of research from our group. And we will start with a clinical case, a patient who took care uh, back in early December 2019. Uh, she so was a 53-year-old lady with no significant past medical history that presented with fevers, dyspnea, constitutional symptoms. She so was admitted to our ICU with acute respiratory failure and quickly evolved into multi-organ dysfunction, 
Uh, this is why I feel that one picture is worth a thousand words for any non-clinicians in uh, the audience. We can see that, uh, so let's see, she so has a large right uh, uh, lung uh, radiographic density. She is, uh, has some dialysis with this plastic uh, endovascular catheter. She has an endotracheal tube. She also has the contour of a defibrillator pad, suggestive that she had unstable heart rhythms. So as I mentioned, she quickly accumulated high burden of uh, organ dysfunction. Uh, the first order of business was to figure out what was going on and was she infected. So uh, at that time, I had not even heard about that novel coronavirus that was going to spread around the world. So we did conventional micro workup at the time. We sent repeated blood cultures. We did a couple of bronchoscopies. Uh, we sent antigen tests, viral PCRs, and everything came back negative. So as you can imagine, we quickly escalated here antimicrobial coverage to four antibiotics and one empiric antifungal. She kept getting worse. She went from absolute neutropenia to leukemoid reaction. Her lactic acid kept elevating. So we are now on a Sunday night. We're desperate. She's on three pressures. She looked like she's going to rest. As an act in desperation, I end up giving her uh, 250 milligrams of solute to come off service. Of course, nothing miraculous happens, but she survived that night and she stayed at that level of illness for a couple of days and then slowly started getting better, actually to the degree that she was eventually liberated. She was discharged to rehab and made it back home. However, the question remained, what was the infection? What was the causal pathogen that led her to become so sick? And why was she getting so sick? We see many patients with pneumonia, but not that many get so sick as this lady. Uh, so thankfully, the patient's family had agreed at the time to enroll uh, uh, this patient to one of our prospective observational clinical research studies. So we end up finding some answers, and I'm going to share them with you as the story unfolds. So let's start first with pneumonia diagnosis. So even in 2019, severe pneumonia was considered to be a serious condition, one of the leading causes of death around the globe. Uh, one of the most common indications for hospitalization in the U.S., and the largest consumer of inpatient antibiotics. So a condition that is deadly, costly, and contributes to the global crisis of antibiotic resistance. Now, uh, speaking of global crisis, as you can imagine, uh, the pandemic infectious pneumonia in 2020 has rendered all these statistics totally obsolete, making a bad problem even worse. So we obviously care immensely about proper management of pneumonia, but we have major diagnostic challenges. Our diagnostic tools have limited sensitivity and long turnaround times. And here's why. When we take care of a patient with pneumonia, it's imperative that we promptly collect respiratory and blood biospecimens for performance of microbiologic cultures and adjunctive molecular tests, but at the same time, initiate empiric broad spectrum antimicrobials because time here is of essence now cultures can take two to three days to provide actionable results but they also have limited sensitivity because up to 50 or 60 percent of the time of community acquired pneumonia we cannot identify an etiologic pathogen that often leads to extension of empiric broad spectrum antibiotics which come with the territory of increased toxicity increased cost ablation of endogenous microbiota and C. colitis, and most concerning, buildup 
of antibiotic resistance. So to positively disrupt this diagnostic paradigm, uh, the use of rapid metagenomic methods has been proposed to comprehensively and timely identify the causal pathogens, but directly in clinical biospecimens before the need of culture. And this is what we're going to review in this first part of the lecture. Before I do so, I'll take a very quick break on the human microbiome definition, study methods, data analysis, and what we know about the microbiome and ventilated lungs. So we will all speak the same dialect. And I understand that uh, Dr. McGinnis gave a similar lecture a few weeks ago, so that will make my job even easier. So very briefly, by the term microbiome, we mean the totality of the body's microorganisms, including bacteria, viruses, and fungi, their genomes, their molecular products, and the surrounding environmental conditions. Whereas microbiota, we refer to the microbes that collectively inhabit an ecosystem. And this microbiota may live in harmony with a human host, but with disease, we may change to dysbiosis, a condition in which the normal structure and function of the microbiome has been disturbed and is now detrimental to the host, causing them damage. How do we study the microbiome? Well, the gold standard method for studying microorganisms is microbiologic culture with a centuries-long ability to isolate, grow, and visualize organisms out of the human body. However, for a comprehensive study of microbiota, cultures have limitations because organisms have different growth conditions in terms of media, oxygen tension, temperature, and for some organisms, it's exceedingly difficult to grow them ex vivo. Now, for efficiency and improved sensitivity, the scientific field has capitalized on novel technologies that emerged from the completion of the Human Genome Project. And that's the so-called next-generation sequencing, in which case we no longer care about the intact living organisms, but we target their nucleic acids, typically DNA, which we extract now from a sample. And then we have two potential pathways. Let's take the simple case. The standard case of bacterial studies. Now we target a specific marker gene, the highly conserved 16S RNA gene of the bacterial kingdom, which we can amplify with a PCR and obtain the exact sequences, which give us a barcode telling us which organism this DNA molecule belongs to, but we don't get much detail beyond that. The alternative approach is more comprehensive. Now we have agnostic metagenomic sequencing in which we sequence all DNA molecules in a sample. And now we obtain not only those barcodes, but we learn more about the gene contact, content and effectively the genetic recipe of its organism. And now from this recipe, we can actually pieces and the phenotypic features of that organism, as if we get the recipe to make a specific type of chocolate. Now, at the end of the experiments, we obtain a population census of component bacteria. And we can ask simple questions such as what's the relative abundance of yellow bacteria over the total population? And then estimate alpha diversity, which relates to the number of different bacterial species in a sample. Here we contrast high alpha diversity versus low alpha diversity. Because in microbiology, as happens with sociology, more diverse societies, more diverse communities are a marker of fitness. So high alpha diversity is considered a marker of health. And finally, what do we know about the healthy lung microbiome? Is that it is a low biomass, 
highly diverse community consisting of oral origin bacteria. The formation of this community is predicted by the adaptive model of island biogeography. So imagine a remote island in the Pacific. So in this case, the ecosystem of the island is created by immigration of animal species from the mainland and also local reproduction rates. We now adapt this model to the intubated respiratory tract, where the lungs are conceptualized as the islands and the mouth is the bacteria-rich mainland. And then we can observe oral microbes to the lower respiratory tract. Diminished elimination from the lung due to depressed cough and sedation. Imagine your deeply sedated, paralyzed patient in supine position. And also, importantly, we have altered environmental conditions in the alveolar space that can fill up with secretions, permeability, edema, creating a nutrient-rich environment for microbial growth and pathogen proliferation. So... For more details on microbiome studies, I refer you to an excellent uh, recent review in Nature Medicine about all the steps of epidemiologic microbiome research, and also a methodological white paper that we wrote as the working group from the American Thoracic Society for Lung Microbiome Studies. So following this introduction, back to our problem. How can we improve diagnosis with microbiome technologies? So in our first proof-of-concept study, we analyzed with 16S endotracheal aspirates from 56 mechanically ventilated patients, of whom 12 had positive microbiologic cultures for respiratory pathogens, and 44 were culture negative. We examined alpha diversity and composition. First, we found that culture positive samples had much lower alpha diversity compared to culture negative, which on the other hand had a very wide range of alpha diversity from completely collapsed communities all the way up to the range of healthy lung microbiome. Next, we examined for compositional similarity between culture positive and negative samples visualized in this ordination plot. This graphic is telling us that these groups of samples were statistically dissimilar, but with some compositional overlap captured by these two intersecting ellipses. And then we opened up the diagnostic black box of culture negative samples for which clinically we had no idea what they might contain. And they did have lots of bacterial DNA. In fact, in about 20% of these samples, there was high abundance of common respiratory pathogen DNA, suggestive of a missed pneumonia diagnosis. And this is what was accounting for this compositional overlap with culture-positive samples. But the majority of the samples had high abundance of typical oral bacteria shown in different shades of blue profiles that are not suggestive of at least conventional pneumonia syndromes, and definitely not justifying broad-spectrum antibiotic usage. That's information that could help with antibiotic stewardship. In ongoing work now led by Ms. Fi Quen, a fourth-year med student at the University of Pittsburgh, who is now leveraging this technology to understand the molecular microbiology of aspiration pneumonia a syndrome that uh, many of you know, it's commonly believed to be caused by anaerobic bacteria and a common practice of using anaerobic coverage antibiotics. Now, by comparing subjects with clinically diagnosed macro-aspiration pneumonia versus patients with conventional non-aspiration pneumonia, we found overall low abundance of obligate anaerobic bacteria, those in the dark green color. Uh, no significant difference between the two groups. 
really supporting the notion that antibiotic therapy should not necessarily differ from patients with aspiration pneumonia, which is really consistent with recent clinical practice guidelines on the topic. So with 16S, the basic technology, we obtained proof of concept insights into the ecology of pneumonia. But it's a technique that's hard to deploy clinically because of limited resolution, slow experimental pipelines, and we can only capture bacterial DNA. To move closer to clinical translation, we moved on to a new technology of a portable sequencer with the Oxford Nanopore technology, the Minion sequencer that can provide, in theory, real-time data of long DNA molecules for better resolution. And that was work led uh, by Libby Yang, a visiting uh, student from Tsinghua University who spent two years in a lab. She utilized endotracheal aspirates from patients in the ICU. We applied a processing step to remove contaminating human DNA. And that step was critical to remove this human DNA noise because we really want to focus on the bacterial microbial DNA because otherwise the human DNA will completely overwhelm and destroy the experiment. And we're able to remove much of the human DNA noise and obtain insights on the microbial communities. And in a proof of concept study, we had eight culture positive pneumonia cases. We visualized now the top three microbial species in each sample. We have much better resolution now at microbial species level. And we found that our sequencing approach had excellent performance. Really the clinically isolated pathogens such as Staph aureus, E. coli, Pseudomonas, was the one that was dominating the corresponding community by greater than 90-fold abundance compared to any other organism in that same sample. We also obtained insights from culture-negative samples, in one case retrieving probable pathogens, but also detecting high rates of fungal colonization, which, at least in clinical practice, most of the time we consider as clinically irrelevant. We have emerging data that will actually challenge this dogma. And I'm going to talk about that in a bit. So respiratory metagenomics was clearly a step forward, uh, but it's an approach that leads a lot of hands-on processing, cannot distinguish colonization from infection, and we do need lower respiratory tract specimens, and especially during the pandemic that, at least at the beginning, was more challenging to obtain. So that's why we also moved in the use of non-invasive samples, and we used blood metagenomics approach with the CARES test, a sensitive uh, uh, tool that can pick microbial surface DNA from many different pathogens as a liquid biopsy of infection. In a preliminary analysis of 15 patients with COVID-19, we found that non-survivors had higher amounts of total microbial cell-free DNA in their circulation compared to survivors. And again, this is DNA. We're not detecting here the virus. We're detecting other potentially co-infecting bacteria. And the majority of that DNA was actually belonging to recognized pathogenic bacteria suggestive of possible secondary infections in these patients. I broke them down in three distinct categories that I'm going to review in a second. First, culture-positive secondary infections, in which we found microbial surface DNA of the causal bacteria. Culture-negative by clinically suspected infections on antibiotics. In this case, it was only case four and five that had high amounts of microbial, of bacteria at least, uh, surface DNA, and one case of high fungal candida tropicalis DNA but no other clear indication of infection in the remaining cases. So likely unnecessary antibiotic exposure. But most concerning, we had four patients with low clinical suspicion for secondary infection, no antibiotic therapy, 
And in two of them, we found exceedingly high amounts of microbial surfer DNA. And those two subjects had a poor outcome. A potentially alarming signal for unrecognized and eventually untreated infections. This work is now expanded by Dr. Grace Licious, one of our internal medicine interns who has uh, analyzed samples from a larger cohort of patients, confirming that microbiologically diagnosed secondary infections in COVID-19 have higher amount of microbial sulfur DNA circulating in the bloodstream of these patients. But we also detect an alarmingly high amount of microbial DNA in patients with no clinical suspicion of infection. Perhaps a testament to how hard it is to clinically distinguish co-infecting pathogens in patients with COVID-19. So back to our case. So after all this, what was the causal pathogen? So we leveraged all three technologies at two different time points. And here's what we found. By 16S of endotracheal aspirates on day one and day five, we found extremely high abundance of Haemophilus influenza. By nanopore metagenomics on an available day five sample, we found high abundance of H flu and also Candida albicans colonization. And by plasma metagenomics, we only found H flu at two different time points. So three different technologies gave us the same answer. H flu pneumonia. So what could we do with this information if available real time? Of course, we could de-escalate and target antibiotics accordingly. But perhaps the biggest benefit would have been to stop digging for an elusive diagnosis of an undiagnosed infection and really focus on why was she getting so sick in response to AIDS flu pneumonia, which we will review in the second part of the lecture. So as an interim summary, uh, multi-compartment study of microbiota in severe pneumonia offers important diagnostic and pathogenetic insights. Rapid metagenomic platforms can allow for accurate and timely pathogen identification. Plasma microbial surface sequencing can reveal causal pathogens in non-invasive ways. But I'll be the first one to tell you that these are all exercises on a map. And we need real battleground evidence and clinical utility studies for real-time metagenomics. So at this point, I'm going to take a quick break and see if there are any questions. And Andy, please let me know if there's anything in the chat because I, I cannot see that. So I interpret silence as uh, no. I don't see anything in the chat or anything, George. So I think we are all with you and understanding where you are so far. All right. If it's clear, I'll move on. Okay. okay. As long as. Okay. Excellent. So uh, it's uh, almost half the hour. So the second part is going to be perhaps a little bit brief. But now we're going to switch gears. So far, we talked about pneumonia diagnosis, and we examined all those microbiome sequencing tools as a means of identifying the causal pathogen, what our conventional methods have failed to do so. But really, that's only half of the problem. Like many patients have H. pneumonia, and some will be treated as outpatients. So why was this lady so sick and developed multi-organ dysfunction? which brings us to the concept of critical illness heterogeneity and why the same insult can result in different physiologic radiographic manifestations and differential treatment responses and outcomes. And to dissect this heterogeneity, we'll use the prototypical syndrome of ARDS. 
The acute respiratory distress syndrome, as you all know, characterized by severe hypoxemia, diffuse radiographic edema in the presence of a risk factor for lung injury. And the central pathogenic feature of RDS involves epithelial and or endothelial injury, resulting in permeability edema in the alveolar space with subsequent activation of inflammatory pathways. And we're going to get to this disruption of the alveolar epithelial capillary barrier. Um, at least pre-COVID, ARDS used to account for 10% of ICU admissions with 30 to 40% mortality, but also significant long-term morbidity in survivors. And also pre-COVID, there was no broadly efficacious pharmacological therapy. And that's probably not due to lack of understanding of the underlying biology, but probably due to the heterogeneity of the mechanisms among patients enrolled in clinical trials. And to dissect the heterogeneity of RDS, I think the major progress in the field has been made with unsupervised classification approaches of large data sets. And this is work pioneered by Dr. Calfi at UCSF. And the discovery of two distinct patient subgroups, uh, the so-called a hyper versus hypo-inflammatory subphenotype, reflective of biological differences with higher levels of cytokines and molecules of tissue injury and organ dysfunction in hyperinflammatory patients, which translates into worse survival. And most importantly, early findings we have now that there are also signs of differential treatment response. So perhaps a way of dissecting patient groups better towards accomplishing personalized medicine approaches. And our group a couple of years ago has shown that this framework can be expanded beyond ARDS, that these ARDS subphenotypes are applicable beyond ARDS. And we examined the presence of such subphenotypes in patients with a risk factor for ARDS who did not meet clinical or radiographic criteria for the syndrome, so-called at-risk for ARDS with the acronym ARFA. We found that similar variables were discriminating between the two subphenotypes in at-risk patients with hyperinflammatory patients also exhibiting worse organ dysfunction and eventually worse survival. So knowing all that, let's review the inflammatory status of our sick lady. By measuring cell-free nuclear DNA, which is a marker of cell injury, we found that she had extremely high levels of that. She also had among the highest values of interleukin-6 and procalcitonin levels we've observed in hundreds of patients. Uh, with the help of Dr. Uh, Nurey, a brilliant biostatistician in uh, the Palmer Division here at Pitt, uh, we developed a parsimonious predictive model for subphenotypic assignments with four biomarkers. And that model gave us a 99.8 probability for the hyperinflammatory subphenotype. So, Provocative then to think that we should have used some form of immunosuppression, steroids, or something else early in the course based on her astronomic high levels of IL-6. And this is an approach that we use for patients with COVID-19, although not stratified by IL-6, but rather with CRP levels. But we also need to remember that these host inflammatory responses do not happen in isolation, but they should happen in response to pathogens. And Dr. Bain, faculty from our division, reminded us in a recent paper in Annals of APS that the pathogen and the context matter. In our early cohort of patients with COVID-19, we found that their systemic IL-6 levels 
were similar to other viral pre-COVID-19 viral ARDLs, but much lower compared to bacterial ARDLs. Dr. Drogon, one of our chief residents here at Pitt and future pulmonary clinical medicine fellow, uh, he has expanded this work and he has shown at ADS conference that the hyperinflammatory phenotype in patients with COVID-19 happens at about similar rate to other viral pneumonias, and it's much less common compared to bacterial ARDS. So then we can consider an expanded model of ARDS pathogenesis, which apart from studying this dysregulated innate immunity and the downstream impact on patient outcomes, will also investigate the role of the microbiome as an early instigator or perhaps a perpetuator of this inflammatory cascade. And I think that this could happen at two different levels. First, at the site of primary interest of the injured lungs of RDS, where microbiota and innate immunity may interact. And then what we measure in the peripheral blood will simply reflect such compartmentalized host microbiome interactions. But we also talked that ARDS involves disruption of the epithelial capillary barrier. And therefore, microbiota or their fragments, not living organisms, can leak in the peripheral circulation where they can be recognized by innate immune cells and systemically activate inflammation. And in the next few slides, we'll review the evidence we've generated that examines host microbiota interactions in these two compartments. First, I would like to highlight the collaborative work we published last year in the Blue Journal and supported by many outstanding investigators, Dr. Smetha, Benos, Morris, and McVeary, to name a few. In this study, we analyzed endotracheal asteroids and oropharyngeal swabs for 301 mechanically ventilated patients with acute respiratory failure, but we also obtained simultaneous plasma samples. From the respiratory specimens, we extracted DNA and performed standard 16S sequencing as we reviewed before and then analyze the data with unsupervised clustering approaches. From plasma samples, we measured host response biomarkers to perform, again, unsupervised subphenotype classifications as previously described. And now we compared microbial clusters with subphenotypes and clinical outcomes. Uh, the first notable finding from that study was that critically ill patients had low alpha diversity compared to uh, healthy individuals. In the y-axis, we have the Shannon index, a common metric of alpha diversity. And our ICU patients get much lower alpha diversity compared to induced sputa or bronchoalveolar lava samples from healthy volunteers. Nonetheless, even among ICU patients, you can appreciate there's remarkable variability from top to bottom. So then we performed unsupervised cluster analysis. And the model we used gave us three distinct clusters that were significantly different by alpha diversity. So we had examined for differences in bacterial composition between these three distinct clusters and found that cluster three, the one shown in light blue with high alpha diversity, consisted of typical oral bacteria. And in relatively equal proportions as shown in this bubble plot of summary relative abundance for Velonella, Prevotella, etc. And this cluster three looked essentially as the healthy lung microbiome. Next, cluster one had intermediate alpha diversity and high abundance of streptococcus, making this cluster one appear as a moderately disturbed community. 
whereas cluster two had very low alpha diversity and high abundance of typical respiratory pathogens depicted in rats, such as Staphylococcus, Pseudomonas, Stenotrophomonas, etc. This was reflecting a state of dysbiosis. And remember that these clusters emerged agnostically, without any knowledge of the clinical variables, just simply looking at the microbial composition. So we then looked whether they predicted the clinical outcomes. And I was quite surprised by how predictive they were. So cluster two patients had worse 30-day survival. And among survivors, they took longer time to come off the ventilator compared to the normal appearing cluster three, whereas the intermediate cluster one fared somewhere in between. Effectively, a pattern of dose response by a respiratory dysbiosis and effects that were independent following adjustment for clinical predictors and confounders. We also discovered that this cluster two membership was independently associated with the hyperinflammatory subphenotype of host responses. And we found this finding especially important because this cluster two membership was not evident clinically in the majority of the cases because half of cluster two patients had a clinical diagnosis of pneumonia and only a third had the respiratory pathogen detected by conventional microbiologic cultures. So more than half of these cases were completely stealth, something that we could not have known clinically. And then we sorted out the specific pathogenic bacteria that were driving these associations. And we found those to be Staphylococcus, Pseudomonas, Enterobacteria, Enterobacteria, showing this bubble plot of statistical significance for individual taxa regression models. In a smaller scale, these findings have been replicated by others, and we're now working on individual study, individual patient data meta-analysis from different studies. Also, in yet unpublished data from our group and the PhD thesis uh, defended by Dr. Britton, uh, fungal now community sequencing uh, with a marker gene specific for fungi disclosed a similar pattern, low diversity of fungal communities shown in yellow associated with worse clinical outcome in patients with no evidence of invasive fungal infection. So we try to uh, visually summarize these results in a book chapter that will be published in uh, or released in January from the American Thoracic Society. I just want to briefly highlight the work of many uh, brilliant investigators, uh, doctors uh, Tanzer, Kalti, uh, Dixon, Leopoldo Segal, and others to name a few that have done both uh, human and animal work that is starting to shed light on the different changes observed in the lower respiratory tract in patients with lung injury syndromes. Uh, I will uh, refer you to the literature. We'll not be able to review everything in detail. The major highlights is that we have patterns of pathogen proliferation in the lower respiratory tract, increased microbial burden, and also some animal and human evidence that there is enrichment with gut origin bacteria, perhaps suggestive of gut lung translocation, a phenomenon that has been very hard to study clinically. So at, at this point, I think it's uh, helpful to start now broadening the model of uh, pathogenesis for ARDS. And full credit for this goes to uh, Dr. Dixon, who has published an inspirational editorial in the Blue Journal a couple of years ago, uh, suggesting how we should be rethinking our conventional pathogenetic model for ARDS. Conventionally, we think about the direct or indirect lung injury factor, infectious or non-infectious, that results into acute lung injury in a unidirectional fashion. But that ignores the lung microbiome, which may be part of the initial instigating effect, if indeed this is an infectious etiology. 
The microbiome may change in response to the lung injury risk factor, be that aspiration or any other uh, non-infectious injury, or the, the other microbiome may perpetuate the ongoing lung injury through further stimulation of innate inflammatory responses. And human studies are going to be very hard to dissect those specific contributions of the microbiome. That's where animal models become indispensable to further delineate their role. So, so far we've seen that lung dysbiosis correlates with a systemic inflammatory response. But now let's switch gears and go to the blood compartment. As previously discussed, disruption of the lung barrier can lead into systemic leaking of microbes or non-viable components of them. So we may not have bacteremia, but we may have circulating DNA, for example. And these molecules that are circulating can act as pathogen-associated molecular patterns, which are perceived as danger signals by innate immune cells and can lead to systemic inflammatory response. To study PAMPs in the circulation, we used a panel of different tests, some of them commercially available or uh, in development. And in our case, we used the readout of such technologies as a quantitative metric of circulating PAMPs in association with a host inflammatory response. The first technology we used was the CARES test. I reviewed this before. This is the plasma metagenomic test of microbial cell-free DNA sequencing. This work was led by Hope Young, a star visiting student from Tsinghua University, who is now, uh, he's returned to his medical school studies. He analyzed metagenomics data, plasma metagenomics from 83 mechanically ventilated patients, 27 with culture-positive pneumonia, 40 with clinical diagnosis of pneumonia, but negative microworkup, and 16 uninfected controls. Culture-positive subjects had much higher levels of circulating plasma microbial surface DNA. Visualized in the form of pie charts, culture-positive subjects had high amounts of bacterial DNA circulating, and the majority of that belonged to conventional respiratory pathogens. And then we found a provocative result. Patients classified in the hyperinflammatory subphenotype, the one that has worse prognosis, had also higher levels of circulating microbial cell-free DNA in the context of pneumonia. So this is an early observation, but to the best of my knowledge, one of the first ones that links circulating microbial DNA with the ominous inflammatory response in the absence of bacteremia. In another recent study of ours, we now looked into fungal pumps beyond bacteria. We used a commercial assay, the fungitel that measures beta-D-glucan, a cell wall constituent of many clinically relevant fungi. Uh, we measured BDG, beta-D-glucan, in 453 mechanically ventilated patients who had no clinical evidence of an invasive fungal infection. And we found that about a third of them had high levels of beta-BDG, above 40 picograms per ml, and this high level of BDG predicted classification also in the hyperinflammatory subphenotype and predicted worse clinical outcome adjusted for confounders. We also looked in the viral kingdom. Now, collaborative work with Dr. Jacobs and Mellers from the Division of Infectious Disease. In patients with COVID-19, we quantified plasma RNA copies of the SARS-CoV-2 virus with a very sensitive in-house qPCR. We found that patients in the ICU with COVID-19 had much higher plasma levels of SARS-CoV-2 compared to hospitalized inpatients not in the ICU, whereas in outpatients with mild disease, the viral RNA was effectively undetectable. 
we discovered that plasma RNA levels significantly correlate with many inflammatory biomarkers, such as IL-8, independent of severity of illness. And with an RSU-curve analysis, we identified that the cutoff of 6,000 copies of viral RNA distinguished two clinical groups with markedly different survival. So perhaps also a useful predictive tool. Therefore, we have human evidence from three different studies that PAMs belonging now to three different kingdoms correlate with the inflammatory host response. But I will admit that with human observational data, we cannot establish directionality or causality of these associations. And we do not know if these traits are generalizable and treatable. Nonetheless, I would like to submit that this type of study can open a new theranostic paradigm for RDS therapeutics. As of now, modulation of the inflammatory response involves non-selective inhibition with steroids, or a bit more specific with anti-IL-6 inhibition in COVID-19. However, if lung and or blood microbiota underline at least some of these downstream effects, there can be opportunities for more upstream, more targeted stratification and intervention. And this could involve targeted antimicrobials, VAP prevention, phage therapy, microbial replacement therapies in the lungs. In the bloodstream, we could conceive PAMP inhibition or blood purification, as it's been done for some LPS studies for sepsis, or even selective inhibition and modulation of pathogen recognition receptors or pattern recognition receptors. So in conclusion, I think with the study of host microbiome interactions in critical illness, we saw that the pathogen matters, but the surrounding microbial community matters as well. And that culture-independent study of microbiota can provide insights beyond the conventional diagnosis of pneumonia. On the host side, we saw that host inflammatory response mediates organ dysfunction and outcome, and that stratification by inflammatory status can reveal subgroups for targeted interventions. But I think that we need to bring these two sides together and consider an integrated model of host microbiome interactions that can uncover new therapeutic opportunities, which is the focus of my ongoing research program. Finally, I would like to thank the village of wonderful colleagues and friends at the University of Pittsburgh, the funders of this work, uh, clinical staff in the ICU, and most importantly, patients and their families who have volunteered totally altruistic participation in observational critical care research uh, with the hope of uh, helping others in the future. So thank you again for the invitation to present today. Thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take any questions.